This morning we come to uh, another dialogue in John. We haven't had a lot of those recently, but but I don't know if you recall various dialogues that Jesus has had with the Jews or with um, people that he's healed. And a lot of that dialogue is so rich that it just takes time to really understand what is being said. And, and certainly when Jesus dialogues with people, his words always have a way of cutting right to the heart, of being exactly what that person needed to hear, whether they know it or not, or whether in the end they admit it or not. And that's what we're about to see this morning in Jesus talking with, with Pilate. Um, last week we, we saw that Jesus was backstage. So if you picture Jesus backstage in Pilate's residence, out of sight, as it were, well, the Jews are standing outside of his house so they can avoid defilement and eat the Passover. And in that first exchange between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, they're outside. Um, we saw all the maneuvering. We saw all the hypocrisy, the plotting, the evil, the injustice. And yet we also saw that in the midst of all that evil and in the midst of all that mess, it really was Jesus in complete control, not just something we say, but something actually coming to pass for real. Because what's going on outside is that his word is being fulfilled. So there he is, apparently the helpless prisoner. And yet outside, in the midst of all the junk, his word is coming to fulfillment. And the word that he spoke is that he would die. Not by stoning, but by being lifted up on a cross. Remember, that wasn't the Jews' plan. The Jews' plan was not crucifixion. The Jews' plan was stoning. And so what we see here, Jesus has actually forced the issue. He has chosen the cross in obedience to his Father's will. And now outside, his word is coming to pass. But yet, we know Jesus has not yet been sentenced by Pilate. Of course, John takes it for granted that that's what's going to happen because that's the word that Jesus has spoken. But so far, Jesus isn't sentenced, and Pilate is um, very uncooperative with the Jews. So first, he says, I insist on trying Jesus myself. The Jews did not want Pilate to try Jesus. Um, They wanted him to take their word for things. And so they told him in so many words, Pilate, a trial is not needed. Just take our word for it. And so Pilate says, if you don't need a trial, then why do you want my verdict? Take Jesus and judge him according to your own law, which would mean imprisonment, flogging, and if they're daring enough, stoning. So the Jews then respond, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, and we see their hypocrisy. Of course, they don't care much about Roman laws. If they can get by, they will. But now, all of a sudden, they care about the Roman law. Right? Why? Because they are going to be satisfied with nothing less than death. It must be death. And a Jewish stoning might incite all the Passover crowds. It might get everyone riled up. It might reflect badly on us. So Pilate, we need you to do it. We need a Roman crucifixion. Just as Jesus said. But Pilate despises the Jews. You see, Uh, I think a lot of times we've looked at Pilate and thought, I kind of like Pilate. 
he's not so bad. No, he just hates the Jews. And he especially hates the Jewish leadership. He hates them just as much as they hate him. And that explains a whole lot of the dialogue we've seen. But therefore, uh, you know, they said, no, Pilate, we want him crucified. And Pilate at that point could have said, okay, send him off to crucifixion. Keep the Jews happy. Pilate would have gotten in trouble with no one. Instead, we read in verse 33, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So that's, that's John's first notice to us that the Jewish leaders did, probably grudgingly, and we know they didn't want to, but now they have provided Pilate with a formal charge against Jesus. Because Pilate said, what's the charge? Okay. Well, this is the charge they've, they've given. He's the king. Well, let's see. Is that really what they said? Jesus had been charged with blasphemy in their own Jewish court. Er, that, that early that morning, during the middle of the night, they had had their court and said, he's deserving of death because he's blasphemous. He made himself equal with God. But they know when they come to the Roman court, that charge doesn't work as well. So now, they change the charge. They accuse Jesus of being a political threat to the emperor. To Roman law and order. Now, how did they get there? How did they do this? Well, they've got their theology all in order. They knew that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the Christ. They know from their own scriptures that the Messiah is a royal figure. He's a kingly figure, the son of David. So, if Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, doesn't that mean he's claiming to be Israel's king? And if Jesus is claiming to be Israel's king, doesn't that make him a revolutionary and a threat to Rome? Now, let's think about this. The fact is, Jesus has not been organizing any militias. He's not been stirring up any violence against Rome. Jesus had not been forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. As Luke tells us, he was accused of doing. They said, he forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, they had no evidence for that. They just concluded that our king, the Messiah, if he claims to be the king, that's what he's got to be telling people. Because in fact, what Jesus said, we know, was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right here in John's gospel, what happened after the feeding of the 5,000? In John 6, verse 15, Jesus, knowing they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So there's no grounds for their charge, is there? Or is there? Right? The basis for their charge against Jesus is not rooted in any real evidence. It's all theological and hypothetical. So again, this is what's going on. We've got to get into the Jews' mindset here. The Jewish assumption is that the kingdom that's been promised in the Old Testament is going to be inaugurated Big word, but I had to use that one. It's going to start, okay? 
It's going to come and be inaugurated by military, political conquest. And that, therefore, the Messiah, who's going to rule that kingdom, promised in the Old Testament, he's going to sit on an earthly throne, ruling from their own earthly Jerusalem. Now, some of that, we can't blame them entirely for having thought some of those things. But that's their assumption. So therefore, their assumption, even if Jesus never said it, is that when the Messiah comes and rules, he will forbid taxes to be paid to Caesar. Okay, first, first irony, they're wrong. That's the first problem. So their conception of the Messiah's rule is entirely bounded by this, this worldly realities in your handout. And again, here here is the first place where we can immediately begin to examine our own hearts and see how much of our conception of Christianity, of the rule of Christ, is bounded by this worldly realities. How does that work itself out in our lives? Their idea of the Messiah's kingdom was ultimately materialistic. In other words, not necessarily about stuff, acquiring lots of stuff, but I mean materialistic as in sensual, as in, as in the five senses, as in just satisfying me now, the flesh. What does the Apostle Paul say, though? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Messiah, is not eating and drinking. He's not saying you won't eat and drink in the kingdom. But he's saying that's not what defines the kingdom. It's not the satisfaction of of fleshly appetites. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So again, what are the ways that we make the kingdom of God to be about eating and drinking? That's a good way to sum it up, right? The satisfaction of temporal, materialistic, Desires rather rather than, if you want to put it in stark contrast, rather than about righteousness, the joy of righteousness. Do we know the joy of righteousness, of peace with God in the Holy Spirit? This is the Messiah's kingdom. It's the, it's the kingdom that the prophets foretold. So this is not anything new. So the first irony is that the Jews' assumptions were wrong. But the second, and the even worse irony, now watch this really close, is that their charge against Jesus amounts to nothing more and nothing less than that he claims to be our Messiah. So, by their own definition, Whoever the true Messiah is, when he does come, he's going to be a political and a military threat to Rome. So whoever their Messiah is, that's the way he's going to be. That's their own definition. Therefore, when they charge Jesus, their charge against Jesus must also be their charge against who? Against who? Anyone and everyone who ever claims to be their Messiah. So let's put the two ironies together. The reason the Jews are willing to charge Jesus with claiming to be their Messiah is why? 
because he's not the Messiah they want. And yet the Messiah they want and that they charge Jesus with claiming to be is not the Messiah God promised. Jesus is the Messiah God promised. And so their formal charge and accusation against Jesus amounts in the end to this. Brothers and sisters, listen to the charge. It is this. Pilate, this man is our Messiah. This man is our king. Therefore, according to the laws of Rome, he must die. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. And so we see, and this is important, I realized this this morning, we'll explore a little more next week, but watch this now. We see how the cross begins to testify to the kingship of Jesus. Why does Jesus die on a cross? Because he's Israel's king. Throughout John, the cross has been Jesus lifting up in glory. It's been, the cross has been his lifting up. It's also been associated with glorify your son, right? With the glory I had with you before the world was. So the cross is this glory thing, but ironically, the cross testifies to Jesus' true kingship because the reason he goes to the cross is he's Israel's king. It's against this backdrop then we see Pilate going back out into the praetorium, uh, um, going into the praetorium inside, and summoning Jesus and saying to him, here's what he says, are you the king of the Jews? It's obviously not a sincere question. Pilate's not being sincere. When Pilate asks Jesus, are you, that's probably emphatic in the Greek, are you the king of the Jews? That's his mocking way of asking. Do you seriously claim to be the king of the Jews? See, there's a difference between, like, if I asked you, are you the king of the Jews? Well, I I mean, do you claim, because I obviously know you're not, right? But he doesn't. He, He just lets his sarcasm do the work for him. And so he says instead, are you the king of the Jews? But when Jesus answers... He uses Pilate's sarcasm as an opportunity to testify about the truth. But he's very careful about it. I was reading this morning, Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 7, don't throw your pearls before the swine, right? You'll notice that throughout his dialogue with Pilate, Jesus never casts any pearls before the swine. Never once. Jesus is very careful. And yet also he testifies to Pilate Sincerely, Jesus answered, Are you saying this from yourself, or did others tell you about me? And I've always struggled a little bit. What is he saying there when he responds to that? Well, here's what's going on. Remember the wording of Pilate's question. He asked a question. Pilate, your words were this. Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus responds, Do you really want to know if I'm the king of the Jews? That's what he means when he says, are you saying this from yourself? Is this, do you really want to know? 
Now, if I were to, if you were to ask me that, and I said that to you, what would you know that I'm meaning? You would know I'm meaning, yeah, I am, right? So that's that's what Jesus is saying. Pilate, the obvious implication of the words is that, yes, he is the King of the Jews, and that if Pilate really wants to know the truth, Jesus will tell him. And yet the context of Pilate's question, and Jesus is, is not ignorant of this, no doubt the tone of Pilate's voice indicates he's mocking. Do you actually claim to be the king of the Jews? So Jesus follows up. He continues, basically saying, he says, or did others tell you about me? Which is to say, or are you just asking sarcastically because I've been accused of claiming to be a king like Caesar or like any other king in this world. And so the obvious implication of these words to Pilate is that, hey, Pilate, whatever you may have heard from others about me and my kingship, their words, if not outright false, need to be explained. Okay? So Jesus, there he is. He's just, he hasn't said much of anything except, except um, do you really want to know, implying, yes, I am? Or did others tell you about me, implying I'm not like they say. And that's all he says. The wisdom of our Lord. And so we see how Pilate's mocking question has resulted in a very uncomfortable situation for him. He's the one who asked, after all. Not only an uncomfortable situation, but also an unexpected opportunity. For Pilate. Pilate asked Jesus, not if he claims to be the king. He asked him, are you the king? What, what response did Pilate expect? What, what response do you think Pilate expected? Well, when you, get, when you got prisoners all the time coming before you, you know you're going to get one of two responses. Number one, I didn't say that. Or number two, yeah. So... So it's either trying to get out of it, or it's belligerence. That's what he expected. But instead, Jesus is neither belligerent, nor does he deny what he said. Jesus asks Pilate a question. He asks him, Do you really truly want to know the answer to that question you have just asked? Am I the king of the Jews? And so without ever trying to one-up Pilate, the roles have been reversed, and it is Jesus questioning Pilate. You have to see the picture. This is the picture John is painting for us. We see the Roman governor appointed by the Roman emperor of the known civilized world, right? And here's this accused prisoner standing before Pilate, and yet we begin to see the judge, and the accused prisoner. And in Pilate, the one upon whom the verdict will be passed. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What did you do? Three things, he says. On the one hand, first, Pilate is contemptuous. What does he say? 
Am I a Jew? So, why should I have any personal interest in Jewish affairs? Of course, I don't really want to know if you're the king of the Jews. Why would I care personally about this? Because Jesus asked, do you personally want to know? Why should I have any, in your handout, personal interest in whether or not you're the king of the Jews? On the other hand, Pilate understands that in the question Jesus just asked him is the beginnings of Jesus' answer, that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Now, if you're a judge and you're a good judge, what do you do now? You say, so are you saying, yes, you're a king? And if you are, then you send him to the cross, right? But, but Pilate doesn't press Jesus for a simple yes or no statement. Jesus implied an answer. Pilate knows what Jesus implied. And so instead of pressing him for a clear statement, Pilate himself contradicts Jesus' implied answer. Essentially answering his own question for Jesus. Watch, watch what he does. He says, your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. Do you know what that means? That means that I know you cannot possibly be the king of the Jews. Because the Jews are the very ones who have arrested you and delivered you to me. More mockery, more sarcasm, and yet Pilate is on his heels. Pilate is uncomfortable. Pilate asks scornfully, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds with his own question, asking Pilate, do you truly want to know? He implies that there's truth in what Pilate says. Pilate, the judge, then tries to contradict Jesus by answering his own question for Jesus. And so we see that the true judge here is Jesus. Now that's not to ignore the fact that Pilate is the Roman governor with all the soldiers who's dressed appropriately And Jesus looks for all the world like the part of the accused and helpless prisoner. That's not to deny the fact that Pilate will send Jesus to the cross. But there's another judgment going on here. Right? There's there's two different judgments happening here. And the one is so much more ultimate than the other. We begin to see that unfold here before our eyes. Right? It's Jesus, the accused prisoner, who has the true, and I'm not saying Pilate has a false authority. By true, I mean the ultimate authority. It resides in Jesus. So after implying that Jesus can't be the king of the Jews, Pilate, watch this, the judge asks Jesus, the accused, What did you do? I don't, I am not by any long shot an expert in criminal justice or how courtrooms and law situations like this should go. But I do know enough that the judge doesn't ask the criminal. He doesn't ask the accused, sorry. What did you do? Never mind the formal charge that's been brought against Jesus, right? Pilate already knows the formal charge. Pilate says to Jesus, you tell me the reason the Jews are so angry with you. You tell me why you've been delivered to me. Now, whatever the tone of Pilate's voice, 
And I have no doubt it was scornful or careless or both. What do we see? We see that he's just asked Jesus to tell him the truth about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus, again, is not going to cast pearls before swine. So Jesus answers, but he holds back a whole, whole lot. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Why do the Jews hate Jesus? Because the kingdom he came to bring, the kind of authority that he has, the kind of rule that he has come to exercise is not the authority, it is not the rule that the Jews want. Remember the Jewish assumption, their working definitions of the Messiah's kingdom, is that it's going to be inaugurated through military political conquest. The Messiah is going to sit on an earthly throne in their own earthly Jerusalem. Their conception of the kingdom is defined by this worldly realities. It's materialistic, it's carnal, it appeals to the, to the priorities of the flesh. The priorities of the flesh. But brothers and sisters, here's the beauty. Jesus the Messiah has come to inaugurate the rule of God. Not by military political conquest. How does he do it? By raising sinners from death to life. What kind of power is that? What kind of authority is that? He comes to inaugurate God's rule by calling out a people to be his willing subjects who will, who will body and soul serve God as their creator and Lord. He comes to inaugurate the kingdom by giving to them the true eternal life. Which What is eternal life? Well, it amounts to Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The passage I just read for us this morning talks about that coming kingdom and talks about how it is the age of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. What kind of kingly authority is that, brothers and sisters? Does Pilate have the authority to call the dead, spiritually dead, to life? For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So here's the problem. If we're all a little bit confused ourselves, maybe, let's let's try to clear it up like this. Yes, it's true. The Messiah's rule will be consummated when death is finally abolished and all the wicked in the whole world are all destroyed, right? But that's not how the kingdom is inaugurated. 
And insofar as the Jews don't want the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates, where are they going to end up when the kingdom is consummated? Why do the Jews hate Jesus? Pilate wants to know. Why have they delivered you to me? And Jesus answers, here's the answer, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why they hate me. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be delivered over to the Jews. Is there not a lot of irony in that? Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate says, my servants will be fighting, so I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from here. Notice then how Jesus qualifies his connection with the Jews. Here's his next little bit to Pilate. And Pilate gets it. We're going to see Pilate gets it. So what did Jesus just do? He distanced himself from the Jews in a certain way, in a a unique way. He says, my servants will be fighting, so I wouldn't be delivered over to the Jews. Now, never mind, if Jesus' kingdom were of this world, would would the Jews be delivering him over? Would they be seeking his life in the first place? Probably not. But never mind that. Jesus' point is that he he doesn't deny he himself is Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. He's not being anti-Semitic. Neither does Jesus deny that he's the king of the Jews. Of course he's the king of the Jews. But what is he denying when he says this? He's denying that he is only the king of the Jews. Pilate. Pilate. Right. Jesus' kingdom, his rule, his authority is not of this world. And do you know what that means? As soon as you know it's not of this world, that means that his authority is not limited to one ethnic group. It's not limited to the Jews. And this means, therefore, that even Pilate himself is subject to the rule and the authority of Jesus. It means that even Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, appointed by the Roman emperor of the civilized world, this is Pilate, he is called to confess Jesus as his king. As his king. As the one who alone has the, in your handout, the authority to raise Pilate from death to life. It's the true eternal life of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Pilate responds to Jesus, signaling that he understands very well what this means. So you are a king. Jesus distinguished. What did Jesus just do? Jesus distinguished Pilate. There are the kingdoms which are of this world. And then there's the kingdom which is not of this world. That's my kingdom. But Pilate is uncomfortable with that distinction. Why is he uncomfortable with that distinction? Because he understands what it means. It means that he might be, in some ultimate sense, answerable to his prisoner, answerable to the man who's standing before him, to Jesus. So what does Pilate do? 
And, and you know, I don't know how many of us, we're all, we're all in a sense rooting for Pilate. Pilate, look at the opportunities you're being given. Look at the gentleness of Jesus as he testifies to you. And so will Pilate, how will Pilate respond this time, right? No, he tries to avoid the issue. He seeks to blur this distinction. I don't want to think about distinctions between of this world and not of this world. I don't want to think about that. And so he says to Jesus simply, so you, and in the Greek, you is definitely emphatic this time, very sarcastic, full of mockery, but that mockery is hiding something else in Pilate, a growing fear. We know that because later on it says Pilate was even more fearful. So you are a king. I don't care what kind of this world and out of this world, just a king. That's all I care about. We know there's sarcasm and scorn, and yet we also know that whatever his manner, whatever Pilate's tone of voice, what has he just done? He's just, again, asking Jesus to say more. So you are a king. Now again, Jesus does not throw his pearls before swine. Watch the perfect wisdom of our Lord in his response. We'll see it in just a moment. But notice, first of all, Jesus is not belligerent. Because sometimes we might say, how did Pilate get here? How did this happen? Pilate's probably wondering this himself. How did this happen where all of a sudden I'm being tried by my prisoner? How did this happen where all of a sudden I find that I'm standing before the tribunal of a king whose kingdom is not of this world, whose authority far surpasses and even encompasses my authority. How did this happen? Well, number one, Jesus, you'll notice, is not belligerent. Pilate is. Jesus is not. Jesus is not scornful toward Pilate. Jesus is not disrespectful of Pilate's lesser authority. Think about it like this in your handout. Jesus, who always submits himself to his Father's will, never needs to prove his own authority. Pilate always felt the need to prove his authority. Hence his sarcasm, hence his mockery, hence his scorn. Jesus, on the other hand, has never felt the need to prove his authority. And I believe that, as much as anything else, has put Pilate off his guard. Underneath Pilate's discomfort, and he's very uncomfortable right now, underneath his scorn is a perhaps unexplainable desire to know who Jesus really is. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. How will Jesus answer? In perfect inspired wisdom, Jesus answered, You yourself said, I am a king. What does he mean by that? This is, a, this is a, an expression we don't use in English. But he means by this, You have spoken the words, and the words are technically correct. As far as they go, Yes, I am a king. But then Jesus continues. 
For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. At this point, when I was preparing, and right now, I am in awe. Who could have imagined that in this scene, in this moment, between Pilate, the Roman Roman governor, and this accused Jewish Jesus, that Pilate would be listening to these words from his accused prisoner, brought before him for judgment. Pilate's question has not gone far enough, has it? And here's where we see what Jesus, how he answers. Jesus is not just a king, which is what Pilate wanted to establish, so you are a king. Jesus is the king. He is the king who is above all other all other kings, all other authorities, all other rulers in this world. His rule and authority is the kind to which even Pilate, before whose tribunal Jesus is standing, is himself subject. Jesus' rule and authority is the kind to which even Pilate, before whose tribunal Jesus is standing, is himself accountable. The authority of Jesus resides not in any human appointment, as Pilate was appointed by the Roman emperor, not in any human office, as Pilate holds the office of governor, but rather in the fact that his birth, contrary to the birth of any other human being on the face of the earth, was his coming into the world, implying his pre-existence. The authority of Jesus resides in that truth to which he alone can testify because he himself is that truth. How did this happen? How did, how did Pilate end up being judged before the tribunal of his accused prisoner? It happened simply because it must. Because of who Jesus is. Because of the authority that he has. Because it's an authority he never needs to prove. Well, the authority of Pilate is something he has felt all his life the need to prove. Therefore, Jesus isn't the king of the Jews only. Everyone, Jesus says to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here then is Pilate confronted with the absolute sovereignty and lordship of Jesus. Here's the representative of the Roman emperor 
confronted now with that supreme authority of the king over all kings who stands before him as a prisoner awaiting his sentence. And so now the real question is not, how will Jesus answer? And what will Pilate's judgment be? What is the real question now? Is it not the exact opposite? How will Pilate answer? And you know, as, as, as people who should long for the salvation of, of all, we ought to be rooting for Pilate. Perhaps now, Pilate will see and believe and drop the sarcasm and, 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 and want to learn in faith. The question then is this, how will Pilate answer? And on the last day, what will Jesus' judgment be? Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? He's not being philosophical here. He's being unbelieving. Pilate asks the one who is the truth, who has just now been telling him the truth, right? Yeah, I don't need to ask you what is the truth. Jesus has already been telling him the truth, right? Pilate knows that. He's heard the truth, and the truth has made him extremely uncomfortable. This is why he asks dismissively, What is truth? Carelessly. Because he's afraid. Because honestly, brothers and sisters, Pilate has seen something and understood something that we as Christians very often forget. The authority of King Jesus is pervasive and absolute. Pilate is afraid because the authority of Jesus is an authority he does not want to confess. He would sooner confess the authority of Caesar than the kind of authority that he knows Jesus is claiming to have. And so instead of driving him to the truth, His guilty conscience turns him away. And so Pilate, the Roman judge, is, in your handout, judged already by the word that Jesus has spoken. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I might ask, we might ask ourselves, does our guilty conscience cause us to minimize the truth or even to trivialize the truth? Or, the other side of it, does our guilty conscience drive us to the truth? For cleansing and forgiveness and for pardon. We could ask this question. Does the authority of Jesus and his absolute right to our obedience, the authority that made Pilate so nervous and so uncomfortable and that ultimately turned him away in unbelief, does it also stir in us fear? Or do we rejoice? But 
What polar opposite reactions could we have? We either fear and turn away or we rejoice to know that it's this same authority that rules all in my life that has called me out of death into life. It's that same authority that calls me out of death into life. Into what? Into righteousness. It's the authority of Jesus that has called me into righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And after dismissing the truth, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release to you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a violent outlaw. Pilate still refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Have you kind of got into his mind yet? Do you know why he does this? There's two reasons. One, he's mocking the Jews. He's trying to show them how ridiculous is their charge against Jesus. Do you, do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? But what else is Pilate doing? It's his way of comforting himself. That the claims of Jesus are really not relevant to him. Because he isn't a Jew. How, how are the ways that we, that we comfort ourselves with dismissing the relevance of the claims of Jesus over our lives? For this I have been born, Jesus said. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so Jesus' claims are just as relevant to Pilate. This is not just a Jewish matter. We see that in his in his. Dialogue with Pilate, we learn that his claims are just as relevant to Pilate, to all Gentiles anywhere in the world, as they are to the Jewish chief priests and the Jewish nation, the supreme authority of the king, the king, who is over all kings, is equally relevant to every single one of you in this room, and to me, to everyone in the world. So while Pilate tries to trivialize and brush aside the claims of Jesus, what is truth? He also seeks to soothe his guilty conscience by finding a way to release Jesus, who he has concluded is not guilty of the charge brought against him, namely political sedition. What are the ways that we try to soothe our guilty conscience? Apart from the cleansing Jesus gives freely through repentance and faith. See, Pilate, he's a a man who typifies so many people. So many of us at some level, and certainly of unbelievers. On the one hand, he mocks, he scorns, he trivializes, he minimizes to hide his fear. On the other hand, to soothe his fear and his guilty conscience, he seeks to do good and secure the release of Jesus. 
So on the one hand, you have the study of Pilate. On the other hand, you have the study of the Jews, who prove once more their hypocrisy and their blindness. They're a very different, there's a, there's a very different kind of unbelief than Pilate's. Barabbas was a violent outlaw. He was the true threat to Roman interests, Barabbas was. Luke tells us he had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. And yet here's the irony. What's going on here? The Jews asked that Barabbas, the rebel, be released. And yet what is their accusation against Jesus? That he is a rebel. That he's the real threat to Rome. He's the one they've accused of being their own Messiah, the king of the Jews. And so, brothers and sisters, let me just remind us here again at the end, and we'll see in these verses, if you want to know John's main theme, it is Jesus' kingship and authority over all. And what we're going to see next week and what we're seeing now is how the cross testifies supremely in a way that stoning never would to the kingship of Jesus. When you... When you see Jesus portrayed, not on movies, videos, or pictures, right? Um, That's beside the point. When you see Jesus portrayed in the scriptures, hung on the cross, what will you see from now on? You will see in the cross the testimony to his kingship. To his authority and rule, which is not of this world, but over all. We see how on the cross, Jesus is lifted up in the glory of his true kingship. On the one hand, then, both the Jews and Pilate are a lesson and a warning to us. There's the religious hypocrisy and blindness of the Jews. And then there's Pilate's minimizing and trivializing of the truth and trying to soothe his guilty conscience. And yet, even in the continued unbelief of Pilate and the continued unbelief of the Jews, we're going to keep coming back to this. We see the overruling, the supreme authority of Jesus. We see it in this way. The authority of Jesus that confronts Pilate with the truth and calls him to account is the same authority by which he lays down his life in order that he might take it up again. It's the same authority. If we say, I don't want the authority that confronts me with my sin, that calls me to repentance, that calls me to account, remember that it's that same authority by which Jesus himself laid down his life and took it up again. And it's that same authority by which he now calls us who believe out of death into life, into righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, please work this in us. Let us not, let us not pretend that the authority of King Jesus is in any way less than absolutely relevant to every aspect of my life. 
Lord, I pray that we would so understand this authority that apart from faith, it would be the kind of authority that would, that would terrify us, that would, that would make us fearful, and that would drive us to turn away from you. And yet, because we understand that this authority is the same authority by which our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life and took it up again, and by which he now calls us out of death into life, and by which he gives to us the life that is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, we thank you now that we turn to you, we turn to the truth, that you have made us willing subjects of the King, before whose tribunal. We must all stand side by side with Pilate, with the Jews who stood there that day, with every other human being. And we thank you, O Lord, that in the end, on that day, we will stand acquitted, not because of our works, but because we we have been justified freely and fully through faith in Christ, a faith in Christ that does work, that must work, that loves and grows and repents and confesses. Lord, as we pray for all these things, we also bow in wonder before you, Jesus Christ, to see your perfect wisdom, your perfect patience, your perfect love, your perfect justice. Thank you that we can come to this table now and partake of the bread and of the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.